Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from the book of Psalms, chapter 32, verses 1 to 11. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you've been with us again, you know that we have been in a series uh, that we've called Living Inside Out, uh, Life in the Psalms. And uh, the goal of the series has been to take the fall and to consider the various spiritual practices that are emphasized throughout the book of Psalms. Uh, these are practices that we very much believe to be vital in our development uh, and our spiritual life. Uh, and today we're going to be considering a practice that in many ways is very central to the claims of Christianity, and that is the practice of confession and repentance. Uh, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that it's a contradiction for anyone to say that I am a Christian but I have nothing to confess and no need for repentance. And so as a heads up, I wanna just clarify a couple of things that we're gonna jump right in. Uh, first, confession and repentance, I'm gonna be using those words a little interchangeably today, even though they do mean slightly different things. Uh, essentially, confession is obviously the admittance of something, and then repentance literally means to turn away. And so in the context of what we're gonna be considering today, confession and repentance, is the acknowledgement of our sin and turning away from it. Why is that idea, acknowledging our sin and turning from it, so central to the Christian faith to the extent that it would be a contradiction for us to say, I am a Christian, but I have nothing to confess or repent of? With that question in mind, let's consider confession by considering the need for it, the context of it, and the strength for it. So first, the need for confession. I do think we need to just take a minute and uh, consider the whole notion of confession. I think in large part because for some, confession is actually a strange concept, depending on your relationship to it. Um, and so we need to consider why it's actually a very universal need, actually, for all of us to engage in this idea of confession. Uh, and to maybe frame it, I want to think about it in this way. So over the course of, of my life and uh, in, uh, over the course of my time in ministry, I've actually seen a bit of a shift in how we think about uh, confession. 
uh, or the recognition of our failings and shortcomings. Uh, for some, it's fair to say, this is very much still the case, that there's a, uh, this is actually one of the fundamental problems with religion, is that there's this insistence that we are sinners, that we are flawed, that we are broken, and that we need forgiveness before God, uh, a God who often provides arbitrary rules. And so for some, the whole notion of admitting to something that's wrong with me is problematic. But what we, uh, what um, often ends up happening when we have that kind of mindset is what we then believe to be true is that in order to overcome the problems that we may have in our life, we actually just need really high doses of self-affirmation, not confession, not repentance. Instead, we need to uh, be much more accepting of ourselves, much more accepting of our flaws and our inconsistencies and even our failures. What we need most in life is a self-orientation uh, that emphasizes the good in us without considering the bad. Now, this whole idea, um, again, I'm talking about kind of the broad strokes of what I've experienced personally. That was like super big in the 90s and in the 2000s, that self-affirmation idea. You know, it was very much the perspective that, that Oprah gave. I remember in her final address to her, you know, in her final uh, show, she says to her audience, emphasizing, you are enough. Sure, no one's perfect, but you just need to accept who you are because everything you need is within you. You are enough. And then in a completely different stream, you had people like Richard Dawkins, who in the early 2000s was making statements like, if you, if you know Richard Dawkins, he's the very famous atheist um, and anti-religious uh, individual, but he, he said, you could persuade me that there was a God who created everything, but... This is incompatible with a God who cares about your sin, what you do with your genitals, or what you think about. In a very crass way, like only Richard Dawkins could do, uh, he's saying, sure, there might be some God out there, but if there is one, he doesn't really care about the intricacies of your life. He really doesn't care what you do or what you think. Really what you ultimately just need to focus on is how you are going to uh, create a life that's best for yourself and not worry about the potential brokenness that you may have within you. Now, I think in recent years, a lot of that perspective exists, but it's also evolved a bit. And I think the recent change um, is that even more than in times past, and maybe even more than any other point in human history, this emphasis on the self has intersected with a new emphasis on identity. And in particular, a self-created identity. The idea of high doses of self-affirmation, again, still exists, but now it's intersected with this newer version of self-created identity. And there's actually been some really unintended consequences that I think have come as a result of these two emphases now intersecting with each other. We've had at least a couple of generations that have grown up in the ecosystem of that distant God who's really only about our self-reliance, our self-affirmation, and then we've had another generation that's been raised up in this, uh, this centering of this um, self-created identity, that kind of ethos. And while one might assume that as a result, we would have very stable, confident, self-assured people, right? and wouldn't that make sense? Decades of self-affirmation, decades of emphasizing a self-identity, you would think people would be much more confident, stable, self-assured. Self-affirmation plus the whole, you, you know, the, the whole you are enough mentality, it ought to be empowering 
And yet, all the data tells us that the exact opposite is happening. Instead, amongst those generations, though you'd think there'd be great stability, what we've actually seen is shocking and skyrocketing rates of depression, anxiety, self-harm. Why? I think there's a lot of reasons, important reasons that need to be considered. But I think at least one reason is that when we really take a look at ourselves in an attempt to find a self-affirmation that can sustain us, we don't actually like what we see. And now there's this disconnect between what I want to be true about myself and what I actually am. And so whatever we've made central to our lives, when it doesn't materialize, when it doesn't become what we believe we ought to be, we're then undone. And here's the irony. The emphasis on self, self-assurance, self-affirmation has actually not led to confidence, but it's rather led to a whole new level of shame. Why? Again, because when we look at ourselves, no amount of self-affirmation overcomes the inconsistency of who we want to be and who we actually are. And often, culturally speaking, we have no resources for addressing that disconnect. I'm supposed to love myself, accept myself, make myself who I want to be, but when I seriously look at myself, I don't like what I see. And this psalm shows us why that so easily leads us to shame. Look at verse 1. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And then in verse 5, it goes on to say, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Here's what I find interesting. The psalmist, when considering confession points out the notion of covering up. Particularly in verse 5, he says, I did not cover up my iniquity. Here's why that's fascinating. This psalm, written thousands of years ago, I think has far more to say about the tensions of the contemporary self than anything that an Oprah or a Dawkins could possibly present to us in more recent decades. Because here's what we're being told. That there is a desire to be known but that there is this self-protective instinct that keeps us from revealing the messed up parts of ourselves. And so as a result of that self-protection, we do tend to cover up. We look at all kinds of things to try and bridge the gap between what we know to be true about ourselves and what we want to be true about ourselves. All of which is ultimately us just hiding and covering up. I mean, we literally cover up with picture filters and curated lifestyles online, hoping it makes me feel better about the way that I look or the way that my life currently is. I mean, we cover up through our pursuits of success, believing that if, if we can just achieve success, maybe we can compensate with success what we feel in our lack of value. We make demands of our families to make us proud because I am actually in need of validation for my own insecurities. And maybe for some of us, we get super moral, super religious, and even condemn others because I assume I can soothe my own feelings of inadequacies by looking at the inadequacies of others. And all of this is nothing more 
than covering up in an attempt to close the gap between what I am and what I wish I was. And the point is this. We all need confession because it is the one practice that upends the cycle of internalized shame because it is the one place where I'm invited to be vulnerable, to take off my coverings and to deal honestly with my brokenness, my shortcomings, my failures, my inadequacies. And so that said, why is this kind of honest vulnerability, openness, actually so key to undoing that shame? That leads us to the second point here, which is the context of confession. Look again at verse 5. It says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. A key aspect of this confession that we see here is where the psalmist directs his confession. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you, that is, to the Lord. Why is that important? Well, first, in bringing his confession, his uh, iniquity to God, the psalmist, at minimum, is recognizing that God is more than a distant creator, unconcerned and uninvolved in our lives. Instead, the God, this God to whom he comes before is one fully aware of, involved in, concerned about our failings. And so the psalmist is living as though the gaze of God is upon him. And so at least one question for each of us to consider is, do we live as though God's gaze is upon us? And I'll tell you why that's so important. Because if we don't acknowledge that God is God, if we don't acknowledge that he is the one to whom we ought to bring our lives, we will fill that void with some other God. We are a people of worship. We will worship something. We will give our lives to something. We will present ourselves to something. We will give our lives to our careers, our relationships, our families, our achievements, the opinions of others. We will fill that void with some other God, giving our lives over fully and completely to it. And if we're not living before God himself, then we are living before a God of our own making, a God that we hope is going to satisfy us. And so, at minimum, we need to acknowledge the psalmist is at least bringing his, uh, his confession before a God who hears. But the second thing I think we need to emphasize is that we're not just talking here about our failings, our inadequacies, or other words that we tend to like to use instead of the word sin. Because sin assumes something more than just a general, I don't feel good about myself. Sin or iniquity is the reality that we act and think in ways that are contrary to the expectations of the God to whom we bring that confession. It's an acknowledgement that there are failures in my life that are in direct conflict with God's desire for me. You know, later in our series uh, in, in Psalms, we'll be looking at Psalm 51, which is another example of repentance and confession. Uh, and if you know the psalm, it was written by King David after he sexually abused a woman by using his power as king, and then he murdered her husband to try to get away with it. Right? The whole thing, grievous, grievous sin. But in that psalm, Psalm 51, again, it's a psalm of confession. Do you remember what he said to God in his confession? He said, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What does that mean? I mean, how is it that he sinned against 
God. Isn't it true that he actually sinned against the woman and her husband? Well, yes, that's certainly true. But why was it a sin against them? I mean, it's only a sin against them because it was first a sin against God. They were image bearers of God with dignity and honor in their very being. And David's dehumanization of them, first by using the woman Bathsheba to satisfy the lusts, his lustful desires, and then murdering her husband to cover up, all of that was an affront to the image of God in both of them. Sexual exploitation and murder are grievous because of the dignity and the value that people possess as creations of God. People are sacred. And that goes for more than just sexual exploitation and um, uh, murder. That goes for all the different things that we might end up confessing. I mean, lying is a sin against God because truth is sacred. Lust is a sin against God because sex is sacred. Greed is a sin against God because generosity is sacred. And so when we recognize that we actually, uh, when we begin to recognize the extent to which our sin is actually a sin against God, we begin to unlock the power of confession. We begin to see how our sin is not just some unfortunate misstep or a regrettable decision. Instead, we begin to see that sin is actually an act of open disobedience and rebellion against God and his perfect will and good creation. It's a rejection of that which is sacred and an exaltation of that which is profane. It is a rejection of God as God. It is a dethroning of God in our lives and a throning of ourselves as God. And so we confess, because if we don't, we become our own God. And as we said earlier, we can't even be what we want to be, let alone what we ought to be. So the question then before us is, do we think about our sin, our iniquity, in these terms? Confession before God is necessary to fight against the idolatry of our hearts, because if we don't confess it, we will become our own gods. Now that said, I also want to just throw this in here as well. James 5 also gives us something interesting when we think about confession. So I've been talking about how we need to bring our sin, our iniquity before God, because ultimately it's a sin um, against him before it's again a sin against anyone else. But then in James 5, James tells us this. He says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. So not only are we being told that we should confess our sins before God, we're also told to confess our sins to each other. Why? What is that? Well, this is an acknowledgement of our sin before God. That certainly um, helps us understand the severity of our sin, but an acknowledgement of our sin also before others, especially those against whom we have sinned, is often the pathway toward a measure of healing. And the reason being is because, this is where it's helpful to have a, a distinction between uh, repentance and confession. Confession is the acknowledgement of our sin and our failures. But repentance is turning away from sin and back toward righteousness. A genuine confession of sin before others is almost always a meaningful step in us turning away from our sin back towards righteousness and hopefully prayerfully experiencing some measure of repair that our sin, um, to uh, repair the broken, brokenness that our sin has caused. And so let me also just say one other thing about that. Something I find interesting about what James said there is that he doesn't call us to indiscriminately confess our sins to anyone and everyone. 
That's an important key piece here. Rather, what he's calling us to is to admit our sins to trusted people, trusted, mature brothers and sisters who can pray with you toward healing. So we need to be able to confess our sins before God, confess our sins before others who are trusted and able to help us on that path toward healing. So let me recap all that. We need to confess because it's the one place where we are able to acknowledge and unpack the things that we often hide, but that we know are deeply part of who we are. We need confession because it's an acknowledgement of our sin and our rebellion against God. We need confession because it's the pathway toward healing, especially as we welcome mature brothers and sisters to walk with us. But all that said, I also know this to be true about confession. Confession and repentance are really hard. In fact, we often resist it because of the potential consequences that might come if I admit to and open up about the various failures that are within my life. Certainly, acknowledging that sin before others can be hard, but many of us struggle to even admit those things before God because to admit those things before God is a recognition that I really am broken. I really have something wrong with me that needs fixing, needs healing, needs redemption. And often in the self-affirmation, self-created identity world, we don't want to admit those kinds of things. And so what we actually need to see is that there is strength provided to us to actually experience the power of confession, which is where I want to close. Uh, again, look at uh, uh, verse 1. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin, uh, whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and whose, whose spirit is no deceit. One of the things that's interesting about this psalm is that biblical commentators point out that the psalmist, uh, is, when talking about this notion of covering up, is actually alluding to Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you remember what happened with Adam and Eve? So Adam and Eve rebelled against God by disobeying him. They sinned. And after this fall, we're told that as a result of their disobedience, Adam and Eve, for the first time, realized they were naked. Now, this was not just a reference to their physical nakedness, but uh, it was actually the reality of being fully known, fully seen. And as a result of their sin, they had become ashamed. And because of that shame, again, if you know the story, they tried to cover themselves. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, and ultimately they tried to hide to cover themselves. They could not bear the fact that there was a gap between what they knew they should be and what they actually were. But why does the psalmist call to mind this story of Adam and Eve with this language? Well, he wants us to not only remember the experience of Adam and Eve and their failure, but he also wants us to remember what actually occurred through this experience. Because there was a blessing that came to them that did, they did not deserve and yet came to them nonetheless. And so to articulate what that blessing was. I want to actually read for you a portion of Genesis 3, which I have for you uh, to follow along. In this passage, Adam and Eve, they've sinned. They are hiding from God, and God is now in the garden seeking them out. And this is what it says. This is God speaking. What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, 
Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then verse 21 goes on to say, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. What's happening there? First, verse 15 is often called the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. It's God speaking to the serpent who we would know would be the evil one. And he would say to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who is this he that will destroy the evil one? Who is the, the offspring of Eve who would undo all that has been done here in our passage with the introduction of sin? Well, Romans 5 tells us that though sin was brought into the world through one man, Adam, redemption now comes through one man, Jesus. Here in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3, Jesus is the he. He is the offspring of Eve being spoken of here. Now, up until this point, Adam and Eve, they've desperately tried to cover themselves. They've tried fig leaves. They've tried hiding. But neither was sufficient to cover up their shame. And what we see in verse 21, after their disobedience, right, after this little mini saga of Genesis 3, God then brings the very first sacrifice for sin, where an animal dies in order that uh, the animal's skins might be used to cover them up. God covers them. He clothes them here. And this, my friends, this entire story, the whole notion of Adam and Eve and their offspring, the whole notion of being covered, the whole notion of our psalmist statement that blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, all of it is screaming of a future day when it would not be a creature that dies in order to cover sin and shame, it's speaking of a day when the Creator would come and die in order to cover our sin and shame. The Son of God, the offspring of Eve, Jesus Christ himself has come to cover our sin and shame. I mean, Jesus, the sinless one, the one who had no need for confession and repentance, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that he knew no sin, yet becomes sin for us. So that on the cross, our sins are placed on him. He bears the weight and consequences of our sin in his death. And then he goes to the grave, but then he rises again. And in that resurrection, he proves that sin and death have lost their power. In the resurrection, the promise of Genesis 3.15 is fulfilled. But the beauty of 2 Corinthians 5, the second half of that is that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that not only does Jesus take our sin, but he also gives us his righteousness. This is what is called the great exchange, our sin for his perfection. So that now when God looks upon us, he no longer sees us in our, our sinful state, but now he sees us in the, the perfection of Jesus' righteousness. We no longer have to be clothed with fig leaves and animal skins. We are now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And so I put all of this in the context of confession because the strength for confession is rooted in remembering that in Jesus we have forgiveness and that Jesus has already borne the consequences of that sin. And a lack of confession 
is an ongoing attempt for us to cover ourselves with fig leaves. It's an ongoing attempt for us to hide away. But an embrace of confession is actually leading us to experience to greater and greater degrees the blessedness of the life that Christ has accomplished for us. And this, my friends, means that confession can be a great joy because it's the acknowledgement of what Jesus has done. I can come in confidence knowing that in Jesus I'm accepted even though I continue to fall, fail, sin. Bringing our iniquity before him recognizes that. I want to close with this. The very last verse of our, uh, of our passage kind of sticks out to me a little bit. A little bit strange. The psalmist says, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing in all you who are upright in heart. Here's why that's kind of odd to me. This whole psalm was about confessing our sins. And I wonder, when we confess our sins, do we explode into songs of praise? Well, if we remember what Christ has done for us, when confession comes, it ought to then be true that we can then say, rejoice in the Lord and be glad. Why? Because our sins have been forgiven. Our shame is gone. Our identity is rooted in the Creator God, the one who stepped into His creation, died for us to cover us. Confession is a joy because it's a reminder of God's great love. And so I pray that we would make confession a regular part of our rhythms of life, our spiritual practice, because it's an ongoing remembrance that yes, we are broken. We are not enough. There is something fundamentally flawed within us, but that God by his grace meets us in that failure and Jesus forgives us and also restores and redeems us if we would trust in him to do so. And so my prayer would be that all of us would come with that kind of confidence and as a result, burst in the song, even through our confession. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of great grace, a God of great mercy and compassion. We thank you that you're a God who meets us in the garden, meets us in our shame and failure. And as you meet us, you also cover us. Lord, even now, as we've been speaking of sin and iniquity, I'm sure many of us can call to mind the various ways that we have not lived in a way that is honoring to you. And so, Lord, uh, though we've already had a moment of confession early in our service, we're going to take a moment and allow all of this to ruminate in the quietness of our hearts so that we might be able to come before you confidently acknowledging we are broken sinners in need of grace, in need of mercy, in need of redemption bringing our iniquity before you. Spirit of God, would you meet us now for the next few moments as we come before you, acknowledging our sin and failure. For just a couple of seconds, let's do that before the Lord. God, we thank you that your word is true, that you are faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sin 
as we come in faith in Jesus. Encourage us, encourage us in that. And may that lead us to great joy, even in our confession. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.